After changes in February made it illegal to identify the victims of sexual violence, even with permission from the survivors themselves, the Victorian government is fast-tracking a review of the state's gag laws. While it's important, of course, that victim survivors have their identities protected, there are concerns the proposed reforms could make it difficult to speak out for those who want to do so. It's by letting these stories be told that we can bring attention to sexual violence and maybe better develop our responses to it. At the end of the day, it's still one of the most opaque crimes in this country, hidden from the spotlight, spoken about in hushed tones, and because of this, poorly understood. And when someone loses their life to sexual violence, families should have every right to speak out about their loss. Hi, I'm Marco Holden-Jeffrey. This is a true crime episode of The Kicker, but I hope it's a bit more than that. I hope the story we tell can contribute to this important conversation we need to have in Australia about sexual violence. In this episode, our reporters Jake Pike and Carissa Bosanakis dive deep into the Tainong North and Frankston murders, a 40-year cold case that stumps police to this day, committed by one of the country's worst ever serial killers. They speak to friends of the victims about how the crimes continue to ripple through their lives. The following story contains discussion on violence, rape and murder. Listener discretion is advised. It's a regular Thursday morning, first week of school holidays. 14-year-old Catherine Headland spends her morning catching up with her boyfriend Johnny, listening to records and watching TV. Just after 11am, she waves goodbye to Johnny and tells him she'll see him later that night after work, and she runs down the street to the bus stop. But Catherine never makes it to her shift at Coles Fountain Gate. On August 28th, 1980, Catherine Headland disappears. The third of six victims who would later be identified as victims of the Frankston and Tynong North killer. I was on the news at six o'clock news or something like that, and they said that there was some bodies found down at Tynong North, and I just knew, we, we just knew at that time that it was her. I don't know why, but I think we felt it. Vicky Ferguson was a childhood friend of Catherine Headland. For the past 20 years, she and her family have campaigned to keep the investigation to Catherine's murder alive. In 2017, Victoria Police announced a record $1 million reward for information on each victim, $6 million total. Uh, the Victoria Police are announcing six $1 million rewards in relation to uh, the four murders of uh, women and the two young girls who were uh, murdered in what commonly known as the Tynong North Frankston murders. Over the past four decades, scores of top detectives have worked the case to no avail, and advances in technology can't account for a lack of physical evidence. I know I'd be incredibly frustrated, but you've got to understand that the road that some of these people went before us, the investigators before us, they may have been limited in a lot of the work they could do that we're not limited with today. Despite the record reward and multiple investigations, the murders of Catherine Headland, Bertha Miller, Alison Rook, Joy Summers, Naramol Stevenson and Anne-Marie Sargent have gone unsolved for 40 years. The bodies of the women were all found in such a state of decomposition that homicide detectives were unable to determine a cause of death. In fact, it would be another nine years after the first women were found until DNA would be used in an Australian court to convict someone of a crime. When people think of serial killers and abductions, our minds often wander to places dark and discreet, not busy streets in broad daylight. 
with the exception of Naramol Stevenson, all of the women were last seen between 9am and midday and had the intention of getting public transport. Serial killers usually have an ideal victim based on characteristics such as age, race, physical traits, or any other innumerable quality. So there are typically similarities between victims. Personal items were removed from each of the victims, a practice former FBI profiler John Douglas describes as common of serial killers who like to relive the experiences of what they've done. But in this case, all of the victims were women, they were abducted near public transport or from Melbourne streets, but that's where the similarities end. Five of the women were Caucasian, one was Thai, their ages ranged between 14 and 73. Half of the women were under 35 and the other half were over 55. The older women were found clothed while the younger women were not. Investigators believed that the reason there were so few similarities between the victims is because the murder was opportunistic rather than selecting individuals based on their characteristics. Throughout the decades, police have developed a number of theories about the murders. A 1985 inquiry into the murders found that they were caused by three separate offenders. But the current theory supported by Victorian police is that all six women were murdered by the same person. Like most of us that have read all the material, we're as confident as we can be that uh, those six jobs are, are linked. The theory supported by early investigators was that the victims found in Tynong North were not connected to the victims in Frankston and that the time frame of the murders is the only link between the cases. Another theory suggested that Frankston and Tynon clusters were not only committed by separate individuals, but Naramol Stevenson was also killed by a third person. Naramol Stevenson was considered to be the outlier, taken well outside the area and time zone that the murderer had previously operated in. Her circumstances didn't match the other women. After 2,000 people were interviewed as suspects, one man stood out above the rest. Walkley Award-winning journalist John Sylvester has covered the murders since 1980 and wrote extensively about them in one of his books, Underbelly 3. So you've got, you know, you've got one serious analysis by police uh, that suggested three killers. That is the Tynong Cluster, the two at Frankston, and the third being Stevenson. Another analysis says no, they're all connected for a number of reasons. But of course, once Janman was interviewed, they all stopped. Now, connected or not, I don't think Harold's going to tell us. Harold Jamman worked a variety of jobs that made him familiar with the areas where the bodies were placed. He had worked at the quarry where the Tynong North victims were found and at a nearby pub. He'd also worked in Frankston as a bus driver on the route the two Frankston victims were taken from. But it wasn't just Harold's job history that made him a suspect. There were other peculiarities such as, well, he was picking up people. He was notorious for offering people lifts on that very piece of road where both, um, both women were abducted. And also, again, it might have been panic, but when he was asked about you know, Sky Road, he said, I, I don't know where that is. Jamman claimed in an interview with police that he didn't know where Sky Road was, a main road that connected to McClellan Drive where the two Frankston victims were found. However... Jamman had worked on Sky Road as projectionist in the years before the murders took place. When Jamman was taken there, one of them said it was like he saw a ghost. That when he got to the very spot, he sort of sidestepped it and went around. And certainly, that investigator thought at the time he was standing there and he thought, hello, yeah, this is my man, he knows. 
Despite this, Jammin always maintained his innocence, and all of the evidence against him is just circumstantial. After decades of living a private life, he finally broke his silence in 2018 and told a current affair that he had never hated a person or disliked them enough to wish them dead and take their life. I don't remember ever having a time when I didn't know about Catherine. I've always known about her, always known about her story. And I think my, even my three girls would probably never remember a time not knowing about her either. While Catherine Millivray wasn't alive when the murders occurred, she's always felt a special connection to the case. Her mother, Vicky Ferguson, named her after her childhood best friend, Catherine Headland. But Catherine is not only connected to the case by name. Her father, Gary Miller, also knew two of the victims, Headland and his great aunt, Bertha Miller. His relationship with two of the victims made him a suspect during the initial investigation. However, he was quickly dismissed due to a watertight alibi and his young age. Miller was re-interviewed years later by detectives when the case was reopened, and they discovered a hole in his alibi. Catherine still vividly remembers when police showed up unannounced at her doorstep looking for her father. When I was probably in year eight, and they spoke with mum, but they didn't mention anything about my dad. A few weeks later, his name was in the paper. I had no idea. And I was in legal studies at school. And someone had brought in the article and said, oh, look, they've found the Tynon killer. And I, not realising that they were mentioning my dad's name. And uh, uh, there was other suspects that were listed. But it's still like, I, I still remember I just jumped up and ran out of the class. And no one knew. No one knew that it was my dad. Though her father was considered a suspect early on in the investigation, Catherine continues to speak to the media to help keep a spotlight on the murders. She said whenever she spoke to the press, it initially drove a wedge between her and her father. He thought that I was out to get him or that I was trying to have people come forward and, and also it causes issues for him if they name him by name. He lives in a very small town in rural Victoria. But this year, as a courtesy, again, I messaged him and said, look, this is what's happened. And I, and, and I didn't realise they've mentioned you by name. You know, I would have given you more warning. I really hope that this doesn't have caused any problems because I feel like we're in a really good place right now. And he said, no, no problems at all. You know, I just want this over and done with like you do. Even after the murder of their daughter, the Headland family continued to reside in Berwick. It wasn't until they were penned an anonymous Christmas card from the suspected killer taunting them with the murder of their daughter that they picked up and moved to New Zealand. Though a necessary fresh start for the family, Catherine worries that the victim's mother, now in her 90s, may never receive the closure she deserves. Catherine's mum, she's still alive. And I hope with every moral fibre of my being that she can have that closure before she passes away. I cannot fathom living for 40 years without ever knowing why or how or having someone held accountable for that. The murder has not only left its mark on the Headland family, but those who knew the victims too. Fearful of what happened to her best friend, Vicky banned Catherine from catching public transport and didn't allow her to leave the house alone when she was a teen. Now a mother herself, Catherine also struggles to grapple with her children's independence. Her youngest is the same age that Catherine was when she disappeared. When I was a teenager, my mum would never, ever, ever let me catch public transport. And I remember me saying to her, you know, mum, I'm I'm 14, I'm 15, come on. Like, all my friends are doing it. And I I had a great trust relationship with my mum. And I remember her clearly saying to me, I trust you. 
I don't trust everybody else. And I now find I've got a 13-year-old now and I find myself repeating the exact same term because I do. I, I have this ridiculous amount of trust with my kids, but I don't trust everyone else out there. On August 26th this year, there was an update on the case. Harold Jamman, now 88, passed away two days before the 40th anniversary of Catherine Hedlund's disappearance. But before Jamman's death was reported, John Sylvester said something about the killer that resonates in light of Jamman's passing. These cases don't get better. So you need an extraordinary bit of luck or a major development to get anywhere. You know, and, and the offender, whoever he is, is very old. So it may well be that the case will die with him, I think. If you or someone you know has been impacted by sexual assault or violence, please call the Sexual Assault Crisis Line on 1800 806 292. Thanks again to Jake Pike and Carissa Bosanakis for this powerful episode. The Kicker is produced by Ariel Richards and myself, Marco Holden Jeffrey. Special thanks to our executive producer, Janak Rogers. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to The Kicker. Next week, Patrick Hargreaves and Dom Hennequin get behind the most 2020 trend of all, Zoom bombing, in the last episode of our first season. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at KickerPod and on Instagram at thekicker.pod. Follow us to stay up to date with all future things The Kicker. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. Sponsored by The Student Doll. Our theme music is by Jack Javins. This podcast was recorded, mixed and produced on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded.